0: Good evening. Good evening. Hello. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Thank you for coming out tonight. My name is Matt Welton. I am the membership manager here at the Oriental Institute. And we're very pleased tonight to bring you this wonderful lecture. Uh, Thank you for coming out. And uh, next year is going to be quite the year here at the Oriental Institute. It is our centennial and we will have a number of enhanced programming, special members events. So if you are not a member, please do join us next year for a very exciting year. And now I'd like to welcome up the Chauncey S. Boucher Distinguished Service Professor of Assyriology Martha Roth.
1: Thank you so much. Can you hear me all right? Okay, thank you. Um, yes, so I am Martha Roth, and in uh, Chris Woods is uh, off in uh, the Middle East now, and it's my pleasure to introduce this evening's speaker for us, um, Professor Karen Radner. Thank you. OK. Um, uh, Radner holds the Alexander von Humboldt Professorship of Ancient History of the Near and Middle East um, at Ludwig Maximilians University, Munich, um, where she has been on the faculty now since <coughs> excuse me, 2015. She is also Honorary Professor of Ancient Near Eastern History at University College London, where she taught for the previous 10 years from 2005 to 15. Uh, She earned her master's and her doctoral degrees from the University of Vienna and her habilitation uh, from the University of Munich. Professor Radner is the author or editor of some 15 plus volumes, as well as dozens, scores of articles, most focused on the Neo-Assyrian Empire, the first half of the first millennium B.C., I draw your attention to her 2015 book, Ancient Assyria, a very short introduction, a book that distills her deep and broad learning about political, military, social, and cultural matters, and introduces a general readership to the complexities of the kingdom of Assyria. Among the honors and recognitions bestowed on Karen Radner are an award for pedagogical excellence from the University College London and awards for her scholarly research um, from, um, and uh, uh, numerous awards for her scholarly research and election to uh, a number of learned societies, including the Bavarian Academy of Sciences and Humanities, the Academia Europaea and the German Archaeological Institute. Her selection and appointment as Alexander von Humboldt Professor recognizes her with Germany's highest research um, prize as an internationally prominent scholar and leader in her field and carries with it a five-year award of more than three and a half million euros. The Neo-Assyrian Empire was the powerful dominant state force in the Middle East in the early first millennium BC. From the 10th century on, its rulers and vast military machinery conquered all rivals, from Elam in Persia to the east across the Zagros Mountains, to Israel, Judah, and Phoenicia to the west on the Mediterranean coast, to Egypt in the southwest, and up in the north, the Hittites, Phrygians, and Urartians in the north from Anatolia through the Balkans. To rule Um, The Assyrian state, covering this vast area of vassal states and conquered provinces, a multilingual, multiethnic, multicultural empire, demanded a complex and sophisticated military and administrative structure. In language alone, the empire's peoples probably spoke dozens of different languages and dialects, including Akkadian, Sumerian, Egyptian, Hittite, Hurrian, and especially Aramaic. During this period, it was Aramaic, a Semitic language written with fewer than two dozen signs, a um, syllabo-alphabetic script, that came to be the common language across the empire. Indeed, many might argue it enabled the empire. By the middle of the first millennium BC, Aramaic supplanted and replaced Akkadian as the imperial language. The well-known image of a pair of war correspondents overlooking a battle, one writing with a stylus in Akkadian cuneiform on a clay or wax tablet, one writing with pen and ink in Aramaic on parchment or papyrus, epitomizes both the social complexity of the Neo-Assyrian society and the bureaucracy and the bureaucratic acrobatics, indeed, necessary to manage such a vast enterprise. The Neo-Assyrian Empire had everything imperial bureaucracies, military innovations, literary and cultural sophistication, exemplified by the famed library of King Ashurbanipal in Nineveh, comprising more than 25,000 records representing every aspect of intellectual and administrative life. Yet in its last decades, just before 600 BC, it was marked by internal struggles for the throne, civil wars and coups, and uprisings of its previously Um, defeated vassals, especially the Babylonians in southern Mesopotamia and the Medes in northwestern Iran. Indeed, within 50 years, the once mighty Assyrian Empire was itself in vassalage to the Persian Empire of Cyrus the Great. How, one should ask, was the Assyrian Empire so successful, and how did anyone dare to challenge it? Prepare to be enlightened by our speaker, Professor Karen Radner.
0: So, thank you very much. First things first, I have to switch on the microphone. And then I have to adjust the microphone. (laughs) So. And now you need to tell me whether it works. Does it work? Brilliant, okay. Thank you so much for having me the reason why I have two microphones is because I am uh, never able to stand behind the lectern for very long and I will certainly wander over to my slides. It's uh, as ever a great pleasure to be here in Chicago at the Oriental Institute. It's a great pleasure to meet so many friends and colleagues again. It's also a pleasure to meet friends and colleagues from Northwestern who are also here. And uh, I'm very, very pleased and delighted to be able to talk about my favorite topic, uh, the Assyrian Empire. Um, I've uh, spent uh, my entire adult life uh, dealing with the uh, exciting period that Martha has summed up just now. Uh, and we are going to follow up some of the remarks that she made uh, when we discuss now Assyrian imperial power on the one hand and then ways how to oppose it. Uh, Let me start by focusing on Assyrian imperial power. Um, This here is an impression of the Assyrian imperial seal Uh, I could have chosen an example here in the Oriental Institute Museum, but I didn't because those that you have here from dur are burnt and therefore very, very dark. You can go into the gallery and see uh, two very nice specimens. This one here is from Nineveh, and I think you can see very clearly what uh, the seal impression depicts. It's on the one hand, the Assyrian king, uh, and on the other hand, uh, a lion, a male lion, who the king uh, slays with his two knives. One knife goes into the head, the other one goes into the breast, into the throat. Who can tell? But the lion roars, he's rampant, as we would say. Um, And this indicates that the king of Assyria is the guarantor of peace. He is the champion who defends not just the Assyrian people, but all humankind against chaos because that is what the lion stands for. The lion is all evil. To the Assyrians, this uh, image uh, conveyed what was uh, instrumental to the royal Assyrian ideology, that the king is what stands between (coughs) chaos and peace. Okay, so Assyrian imperial power Um, is a topic that we can study in great detail uh, through a variety of different sources, uh, and art is, of course, one of them. We uh, need to uh, focus at first on uh, the size of the state. Uh, Martha has already described uh, Assyrian power at its largest um, extent. I want to start in the ninth century BC when uh, things are a bit more modest. And still, at that time, uh, Assyria outclasses all surrounding states by a multiple. It is by far the largest territorial state uh, in the region, and yet it has a very compact size and compact uh, uh, shape. Uh, in terms of size, I think one needs to really emphasize how small it really is. Because all this talk of stretches from the Mediterranean to Iran, from Anatolia down to the Gulf, uh, creates the impression that it has a size that might almost rival that of Russia, of the US. It certainly doesn't. This incarnation of the Assyrian state is uh, uh, encompasses uh, the territories of the size of modern Greece. And Greece is many things, but it's not very large. Yeah, Um, good, so um, in red here I have marked the city of Kalhu Nimrud, uh, nowadays, Uh, and it is the year 879 BC that um, marks the move uh, of the Assyrian political power, if you will, from Assur, to the south, to this city of Kalkhu. And to me, this move, which I'll discuss uh, uh, in, in some detail uh, in a few minutes, to me this move marks the beginning of the imperial period of the very, very long Assyrian history that precedes uh, this moment in time. Uh, Assyria is a kingdom. Uh, when we talk about empire and so on, then this is, this is completely modern terminology. Uh, To the ancient Assyrians, there was the kingdom of Assyria and it had been in existence since the 14th century BC, Mat Ashur. We like to break down periods, of course, into smaller, more manageable units. And when I talk about the Assyrian imperial period, that starts for me in the year 879 BC. Others may have other ideas, but I hope to convince you that this is a monumental moment in the political development of that state. So um, before we go into that, Here is uh, Assyria at its largest extent. I have to, uh, I should really um, remind myself and you that what I show here is the territories that are under direct control of the Assyrian king. Those are the regions within my black line. There are of course very, very many client states, Martha called them vessel states, that surround this black line and that are also beholden to the power of Assyria but uh, the black line marks the provincial extent of Assyria, and by the year 672 BC, uh, when Assyria reaches its largest extent in terms of the provincial system, uh, the country is the size of roughly modern Spain. Now, Spain is indeed one of the larger European countries, but again, it's certainly no match for Russia or Canada or the US, yeah? So, uh, often, the Maps that we use are hugely misleading, um, and I want to just here show you uh, a graph that shows the directly controlled uh, territories linked to the various important time points. We start here with our first map, that was Ashanazepal, and we end here with our last map under Isaharden, and you can see that the uh, territorial uh, gain was very remarkable, and you can also see that most of this happened in the mid-8th century, yeah? So um, if one is interested in Assyria, then in the imperial period, then there are several uh, specific moments in time that are very, very exciting to study, and one of them is when Tiglat pileso III expands the state drastically and almost triples uh, its directly controlled territory. We are not going to focus very much on that. We are going to focus on uh, the period under ashur first and then very much on the period in the 7th century at the end of our graph. Um, when we compare now these um, various incarnations uh, of Assyria to the various European countries, then the red uh, lines are always the growth of Assyria, and I just want you to know that um, Assyria, at its very best, is significantly smaller than France, is slightly bigger than Spain, um, and um, Germany is not so far off uh, from the um, extent of, um, uh, of Assyria during the reign of Pileser. Those of you uh, that uh, are interested in the early modern period and early modern European history uh, will understand when I claim that what we can see in Assyrian history is often paralleled in what we can observe in the history of the early nation state in in Europe when France and Spain are consolidated. So that's in a way a much, much better uh, comparative often than comparing Assyria with the Roman Empire or the Achaemenid Empire. And that's uh, what I want to achieve with this graph really, uh, to give you a sense of scale, because it is true that Assyria at this moment in time is the largest state uh, in the Middle East ever, but it is still manageable. It's not enormous. We are not dealing with the vast expenses that you can see here from Chicago. Nothing like that, yeah? it is. Spain, France, Germany, the UK that you have to bear in mind. And in the early modern period, the challenges of cohering, of making such a region coherent are substantial, but not unsurmountable. And the same is of course true for uh, the uh, ninth to seventh century BC, because the technological conditions at that time were not so very different from the 16th or 17th century BC, uh, AD. Yeah, So that, that's one thing that we have to bear in mind. We should never ever underestimate the Assyrian bureaucracy, the Assyrian state as such, because there is a lot that can be done in a region that is as compact and as manageable as what we are dealing with here. Okay, so um, to me, As I said, the imperial turn is the move to the new capital in 879 BC. so that's how Assyria looks like at that time, surrounded by very many, much, much smaller states uh, that all, by and by, accept uh, the Assyrian uh, uh, king as their overlord, if you will. Um, The Assyrian king himself has an overlord, too, and that is the god Ashur. The god Ashur is who is really the um, uh, king, the lord of Assyria, and uh, the uh, king uh, of Assyria, the monarch, rules uh, by the god's mandate. And this is uh, an image that shows um, one of many kings of Assyria. They all choose to be uh, portrayed in uh, this manner with this very distinct Hat with this type of garment. Um, And you can go, of course, into the Oriental Institute Museum um, and see a fragment of such a stele and see um, depictions of uh, Assyrian kings just like that. In this um, uh, image, the king chooses to be portrayed in prayer because that's what this gesture indicates uh, Assyrians pray like this, yeah, and that's what the king does here. So in uh, this uh, image, he is shown as uh, a worshipper in front of the gods, and the gods are um, present in the shape of these uh, symbols up there. Um, in uh, various uh, texts, uh, hymns, and so on, the king. Emphasize, various kings emphasize their relationship to the god Ashur. The god Ashur is king and whoever is the, uh, uh, the ruler is the representative of Ashur, the creation of his hands, his creature if you will. Um, so we are dealing with um, a, a, a type uh, of rule where the king is not divine, but he is divinely chosen, divinely appointed, divinely led, yeah? And the first and foremost function of the king of Assyria is that of a religious figurehead because the king of Assyria is the uh, chief priest, if you will, the chief intermediary between the god Ashur and the people. And it is part of this role of being the intermediary that he protects the people from all evil. And we have to bear in mind that it is only in the 14th century when the kingship of Assyria is invented by one uh, person called Ashur-Ubalit, that the king of Assyria also takes on the role of a military commander. Traditionally, the role is religious in nature, and the role is that of a spiritual figurehead, an intermediary with the gods. And the kings of Assyria never ever forego this important function. But in the first millennium, and especially in this imperial period that we are interested in, uh, they choose to foreground other aspects, and especially their function as a military leader. Yeah? Okay. But this idea that it is in truth the god who is the king and that the ruler is only his tool, his representative, his creation is very, very prominent. Now let's have a look at the god Ashur. So I, I say Ashur, sometimes I say Asur, it's the same thing. Don't worry about it. I tend to say Ashur when I mean the god and I tend to say Asur when I mean the city that you can see here, in order so that there's some kind of distinction, but to the Assyrians, they are the same. The name is the same, and they are the same. This is an aerial image uh, of Asur, Um, and the most prominent corner is this rocky outcrop here, high over the Tigris. The Tigris is in spring flood here, and this rocky outcrop rises some 20 meters over the river when it's not in flood. And on top of this um, outcrop sits the temple of the god Ashur, and this rocky outcrop is not only where the temple is located, the rocky outcrop is the god, because Ashur in his nature is a mountain deity. And here's an early depiction of the god from uh, the temple of Ashur where you can see this. Following the artistic conventions of early Mesopotamia, the god is uh, shown as sort of growing out of the ground. Those of you that are familiar with Mesopotamian art will know that these fish scale type things are meant to be the uh, rock of a mountain. This is how uh, mountains are always shown. And you can see that The uh, human figure that then grows out of this mountaintop uh, has various uh, plants growing from his body, and next to him are two female deities that hold small vessels in their hands, and water is streaming from these vessels. So these are deified springs, deified water sources, and that is a very nice uh, uh, summing up of the geography of our mountain outcrop here, of our situation there. There is water here, it's well protected. It is the nucleus of the city of Assur that you see spreading out here around the temple. What you see here is um, actually an Ottoman period fortress uh, constructed there of course because of the excellent views over the plain that this offers. So uh, the the god Assur is this rock and is the city that grows out from this temple. And he is therefore very stationary. You cannot take us away from the mountain, which is a good thing, but it can also be a problematic thing because the god is tied so much to this one place. That uh, won't... Um, Uh, There won't be a problem for anyone who deals with Anatolia, but from a southern Mesopotamian uh, perspective, this is a very, very curious thing. And that's something that sets uh, this god very much apart from other deities that are worshiped in the Middle East at that time that have far, far less of a deep, deep uh, rooting in one particular uh, place. Okay. So let's here look at an artistic impression of the sacking of Ashur in the late 7th century. Don't mind the flames, focus only on the fact that the Ashur temple dominates this corner here, including the steppe uh, the, the stepped tower here. The royal palace is right next to the uh, temple complex. is much smaller, is overshadowed, especially by the stepped tower, and surrounded by various other temples. There is no wall that would separate the palace from the temples, or indeed the palace and the temples from the rest of town. Everything is very, very close to each other. So we can say that while the king of Assyria is in residence in the city of Assur, he is very close to the god Ashwa, as he should be, but he's also very, very close to the people. Ashur is a very small place, very small, smaller than the campus in which we presently are. So it's a bit claustrophobic, or alternatively, you can say, um, the king is not removed. He is one with the people that he, uh, that he guides, uh, that he rules. Okay, that completely changes in 879 BC, when one king, Ashur Nazipal II, um, moves his residence, his palace, uh, to a completely different city, the city of Kaichu, You have seen it on the map. Um, and uh, he creates a city that is very, very different from Assur, much larger. Uh, so large that it uh, includes the two settlement mounds here that were both independent cities, towns, prior to this move. One is turned into um, a a citadel uh, surrounded by walls that is dedicated to the palace of the king, by far the biggest building on this citadel, and there is nine, nine temples are um, uh, built there as well, but no temple for the god Asher. Yeah? The other citadel, slightly smaller, ha- has only a palace, and it's the king's military arsenal. It's a fully functioning palace as well, but it is, uh, it, it, it is, um, it's devoted to matters of warfare yeah? and uh, administration. Whereas this palace here is the stage for the king to meet with his subjects, with the uh, Assyrians, with everyone who has to follow the command of the king of Assyria and also the god Ashur. So in this new city, you can also see this black line that surrounds the lower town where the houses of uh, the people of Kalkhu are situated. In this new town, the king is out of reach of the people, but also, of course, very much out of reach of Assur, because Assur remains at his holy rock in the city of Assur, in his temple, yeah. So the king is also really center stage, because the Northwest Palace, as we call this palace, is at that point in time the largest uh, building uh, anywhere. It is a huge, Uh, a stage for the king to meet in a framework that he decides on with whoever wishes to meet with him, with whoever seeks to meet with him. Um, And this building is, of course, much larger than the various temples surrounding it. It is uh, very, very well visible from the plain, from the lower uh, town. The king is at, at the center of the realm in this new building. Far away from the people, far away from God Ashur, but very visible and very prominent. Um, And this uh, is to me the beginning of a new period of Assyrian history when the king is emancipated from God Ashur, but in the texts, in the official inscriptions, nothing changes. The sentiment that the God is the overlord and that the king is his representative, his tool is still very, very prominent. And what I find amazing is that this very drastic change in uh, Assyrian political ideology, something that really completely transforms traditions that we can trace for over a thousand years at that point, that this is being accepted not just during the reign of Ashonazepal, but also during the reign of his successor, which is mired in trouble towards the end, and the uh, people of Assyria accept this emancipation of the king, this leaving behind of the deity, this new form of kingship that puts the king at the center of everything. And if we think of other similar projects, I think everyone will, uh, 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 see the resemblance to what Echnaton does in uh, New Kingdom Egypt, then of course, one has to wonder why on earth did this succeed? Yeah? Why were they able to convince people that this was the right thing to do? So I think we have to appreciate the enormity of what's going on here. The very, very drastic change that we have here in the conception of kingship, and to me, therefore, this is the beginning of something very new. And when we talk about the kingdom of Assyria and the Assyrian empire, we have to be aware of the fact that there is Assyria, the kingdom, that is sort of always on the verge of turning into a nation state. Yeah, it's uh, the idea is that the new people are counted as Assyrians. So within this black line, there is the idea of turning everyone into Assyrians, not outside. And that is really where the empire is, of course. In these regions that accept the rule of this king, in in these regions that accept that they too have to participate in this uh, political project that we have here. Okay, so let's now look at the people that arguably carry this project, the elites. The king is one person, fine. We all know that uh, there need to be people that support someone's claims to power. Yeah? We are in a period where the traditional understanding has been undermined, has been changed completely. And so who are the people that agreed to support this political experiment? who agreed to the idea of making the king of Assyria the most powerful individual at the time in his own right with the backing of God Asher, but outside of the shadow of God Asher. And those are, um, on the one hand, the elites uh, uh, inside Assyria in the provinces, inside our black line, And on the other hand, people that live in the client states, the external elites. And we'll very briefly look at them before we ask ourselves, how does one oppose the imperial uh, power? So for the internal elites, so the people within our black line, the key message is, power is achievable, but it comes at a price. Um, And we have to appreciate that the move away from the city of Assur meant that many, many more people could hope to influence the king, to have access to the king, to be close to the king. In the city of Assur, as I said, a bit claustrophobic situation, of course, the people that lived in Assur were overwhelmingly privileged in their access to the king. Those were ancient families that could trace their ancestry for as long as the king himself, for centuries, for a millennium perhaps, and they were, of course, a danger to royal authority. No more of that in the new setup in Kaiju because the king appointed an official to handpick people from all over the realm and also from the client states that were fit to live in the uh, new capital. And this means that um, there is a great acceptance at the time to what I would call social engineering. There's a great acceptance at the time to be willingly submitted to relocation. Um, That on the one hand gives us an idea of the power that the Assyrian um, state enjoyed, but it also gives us an idea of the acceptance of that power and the possibilities that people must have seen in conforming to the expectations. So here, um, this is my take on the fundamental difference between the population setup of the city of Assur and the city of Caixou. I'm sure you sort of understand what I mean with this. This is meant to be ancient, entitled, aristocratic uh, people of Assur that think that they are just as good as the king, okay? And these are the people that the uh, new capital is meant to attract. Those are meant to be artists, craftsmen, creative people that will inform imperial art and the uh, 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 creation of new technologies, and so on and so forth. And Martha, in her introduction, has already pointed out that the Assyrian Empire was extremely successful in, if not inventing, then refining and uh, um, um, uh, implementing new technologies, Uh, yeah. So um, that's, uh, to me, uh, um, um, a good way of, of, um, of, of highlighting this. And some of you will be aware of the fact that I've taken this from my MOOC, my massive open online course, Uh, on the Coursera platform, you can see the link there. It's called Organizing an Empire the Assyrian Way and I had a lovely lunchtime meeting today with some docents of the Oriental Institute who taken the MOOC Uh, and um, if you want to know exactly how I think uh, the empire is run, then I encourage you to sign up for this free course And there is a lot of Playmobil. And I know that there are some other fans here. Professor um, Paulus here. Okay, Not of my MOOC, but of Playmobil. So to clarify that. (laughs) Okay. So my point is this new situation in the imperial age allows more people at least to entertain the hope that if they cooperate, if they confirm, they will have more clout in this state. It mixes things up. It, of course, privileges the king beyond anything, but many, many people will have thought that if they make certain sacrifices, they will have a better life, yeah? So that is, for me, one of the reasons why this move to Assur worked, because the people of Assur were the ones that suffered most from this, but overwhelmingly the people in the, the territories under Assyrian control stood to gain from this. Um, If we um, look at that map again, so this is uh, um, the later incarnation of the empire, this moving of the royal residence, the creation of a new capital, that happens again and yet again. Uh, And it is a very powerful and successful tool, apparently, to maintain and um, strengthen royal authority. And of course, here in Chicago, you are in a very fortunate position to be able to go over to the museum and admire um, sculptures and finds from the Oriental Institute's excavations in the 30s in Dur-Sharokin in Korsabad and get a an sense of the craftsmanship, the, 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 the massive work that went into the construction of these new capitals every time And be aware of the fact that each city is bigger than the previous one. Be aware of the fact that each time new people are being selected, chosen, to live there with the king. And each time, the king uses the chance to distance himself from someone else because the other cities, of course, remain in existence. Okay, so, Power comes at a price for the elites. We should bear in mind, of course, that the Assyrian Empire famously used uh, um, um, deportation, uh, uses the um, um, mass uh, resettlement uh, of people throughout its existence. It's nothing uh, new in the Imperial Age. This is an ongoing process, and we have to be aware of the fact that uh, this really, really affected very, very, very many people. I gave a credit seminar yesterday on this topic, um, and um, we will move on, therefore. Um, The other type of elites that I want to focus on is what I want to call the imperial elites. So those are the people that really help the king to govern, to rule. And those are overwhelmingly eunuchs, castrated men that are presumably Uh, as boys, given over to the palace, they enter the palace, uh, and they are trained and educated in the palace, and serve the king and the empire, and are cut apart from their own families. Their identity is completely reconfigured as imperial servants. So what happens in the ninth century is that Uh, an old tradition at court that is not at all specific or singular to Assyria. This old tradition of having eunuchs at court to serve the royal family, to ensure that the royal bloodline is not in any way uh, that this old uh, institution of the eunuch that is very strongly associated with serving a particular ruler, yeah? those are courtiers par excellence. This very old institution is transformed just as that the role of the king is being transformed because the eunuchs are now sent away from the palace. Yeah? For centuries eunuchs have served the royal family, the king, inside the confines of a royal palace. Now these people are sent out into the provinces to serve especially as the the governors of the, uh, by the seventh century, 70 um, odd provinces that make up the territory within my black line. These people replace, on the one hand, um, family members, of the royal family that had this position before, and also local uh, elites that held power locally before. And they are immediately recognizable in a world where every adult male wore a proud beard, like the gentleman that I'm facing right now, Um, in a world where every adult of course had a beard, wouldn't think of shaving unless he was a priest and had priestly functions, in which case he would shave all over. Yeah? But in a world where the norm was that an adult would wear a beard, the eunuchs of course stood out immediately without the need for special dress or anything because they are beardless. They're not clean shaven, they are beardless. Okay, there are many doctors here, I know, and if you have questions, ask them in, uh, later. Um, <laughs> Okay, so so the eunuchs are a great emblem um, of uh, the state of Assyria. They are a great symbol uh, of how the influence of the king spreads through the lands. You see someone like that, you know they have a link to the king. Yeah. Okay, so that's that's, uh, uh, the imperial elites. There are some people, of course, that are in power who are not uh, eunuchs but the majority have made this sacrifice or their family have made this sacrifice that they will never have a family of their own, that they will never have children. In a society where having children is equaled, is equated with having a good life in the beyond, yeah? a good life after death. So this is a big thing, and the uh, royal family guarantees that they will take care of the death rights for all their servants, for all their eunuchs. And of course, that means that the royal family replaces the birth family, the future family for these men entirely, okay? So this is, an another, is another very, very big change that really shapes the political situation in Assyria drastically. And while eunuchs are nothing new at all, the use that is being made of them from the ninth century onwards is very, very different and very innovative. The big question always is who are the eunuchs? I cannot answer that uh, precisely. I can only say that um, it was clearly seen as a perfectly acceptable way of living. Yeah? There was no shame in being uh, a eunuch. They were considered men. Yeah? And they were people that were members of the royal household. So that had a lot of status, of course. And we can presumably assume that some of them, many of them, or a few of them, we don't know, but at least some of them were members of the Assyrian elites that we've been discussing, that families choose to give up some of their sons because they wanted influence for them, or for, uh, perhaps they hoped that there was still a link to the family and would seek to have this uh, sort of link with the Palestine. Yeah, But uh, on the other hand, it is perfectly possible that we have to assume the chinese model here and that the most that every region was under the obligation of sending the most talented the cleverest boys to the palace we don't know the details the chinese scenario would make a lot of sense of course but we have no no, no way of knowing whether that's how it worked in assyria no text informs us about this okay So let's turn to the external elites, the people beyond our black line. In the Assyrian royal inscriptions, uh, the relationship between the provincial territories and the client states are often uh, painted in a very dire light. There a lot of emphasis uh, is on conflicts, Um, and we have to be aware of the fact that we can learn quite a bit from these royal inscriptions because Um, The client rulers, from the viewpoint of the Assyrian crown, represent the most stable form of government in these client states. Uh, The Assyrian monarchy supported other monarchies. They believed that uh, the claims of the legitimate ruling house were best protected, that it was in their best interest to uh, have stability there. And that means that While there are rewards for loyalty, there is an enormous willingness to forgive all sorts of transgressions. Um, Because very frequently, uh, rebellions in the client states do not end up at all with someone entirely new being put on the throne. No, the family keeps on going. And quite often, it's the offending ruler who is allowed to continue. So uh, we have to uh, um, stress that the Assyrian royal house is linked to many of these client uh, um, uh, kings' uh, families by family relationships. On the one hand, uh, members of these uh, um, client uh, 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 kings' uh, families were raised as hostages in Assyria, and on the other hand, there was intermarriage. The Assyrian king uh, um, had one queen, there was one uh, uh, official queen with a particular status and role within the kingdom, but the king was legally married to very many women. It was quite unusual uh, in uh, the Assyrian realm because the uh, the rest of society was overwhelmingly monogamous. So that was another hallmark of the Um, distinct and very separate social status of of the king. So the the king uh, was uh, linked personally in many ways uh, to these client uh, uh, kingdoms by marriage and by great familiarity. Um, On the other hand, there are um, also strong incentives for uh, the local elites otherwise to um, consider the move to the Assyrian uh, heartland. They had very, very uh, good career prospects within the Assyrian army, and there were other opportunities at court, for example, in the personal entourage uh, of the king. And on the whole, these uh, local elites also profited from the improved infrastructure within the state, um, especially when it comes to trading. So uh, Gianni Lanfranchi, in an important article from 1997, was really the first to point out just how much the uh, external elites had to gain from cooperating with the Assyrian royal house. And he called that consensus to empire, and I think that's a very, very good slogan. So we have to bear in mind that this political regime enjoyed a lot of support, yeah? now we will turn to the second part of my talk. After hopefully having convinced you that uh, the Assyrian Empire was not just one king's megalomaniac uh, personal enterprise, yeah, and everyone else hated the idea. After hopefully having convinced you that the only way this could work for the long period of time that it did was by integrating what we tend to call the elites. Now I want to look at How could one oppose this extremely effective form of government, yeah? Okay, so the Assyrian Empire can be described as a lowland predatory state. Sounds very grim, but I think you all understand what what it means. So the um, heartland, of course, and most of the territory, indeed, is in the lowlands of Mesopotamia. Uh, The mountains, the deserts, are often the boundaries, the frontier zones uh, of, the, uh, uh, of the kingdom, um, and the lowlands are the regions where the state can best extract from the people what it wants as a predator. And that is taxes and labor, conscription and taxation. Yeah. And that is indeed what every state wants, that is nothing new at all, and is widely accepted at the time. Yeah? By the ninth century, the inhabitants of Mesopotamia had been used to giving up taxes and work to the state authority, not just for centuries, but for millennia. Yeah? So that's nothing, nothing new. We'll talk about the tax burden a bit later. OK, but so. If you didn't want to give up your taxes or your workforce to the Assyrian state, could still live in its uh, uh, territory, you just had to get off the grid and that is a real option that you have. Yeah? You can avoid the lowlands, you can avoid the cities and you can especially avoid farming. Yeah? If you do that, you don't have to pay taxes, and you don't have to offer labor uh, because taxation and conscription is linked to land ownership and particularly the ownership of farm land. Okay, but that means that you m- must show a willingness to make your life in the mountains or in the desert. Uh, it seems to me that most people in Chicago don't have that willingness because <laughs> otherwise you wouldn't be living in a big city. Uh, And that appears to be also the case in uh, Assyria. Uh, Overwhelmingly, people lived in fairly large cities, and overwhelmingly, people were farmers, yeah? Okay, so therefore, Uh, What are your options, then, if you want to live in the comfortable lifestyle of a person living in the city, eating cereals, eating, uh, you know, uh, beef, and eating uh, 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 all the trappings of uh, the Mesopotamian diet that had been developed for millennia at that point? Well, you can exploit (laughs) tax loopholes. That, too, will probably be familiar here. And the tax loopholes were considerable. So you could grow cereals other than barley, wheat, and emmer because those were the ones that were being taxed. Those were the ones that the Assyrian state thought you would uh, grow. You could raise livestock other than cattle, and sheep, and goats also, and equids, which no one did privately anyway. Horses were very much a state thing and you could avoid city gates and river crossings. If you did that, you also didn't have to pay taxes. Um, So, I've uh, an archeological project in uh, northern Iraq in the Kurdish uh, um, autonomous region and specifically in the province of Sulaymanir. We've been working there since 2015. We call uh, the place now the Dinka Settlement Complex because we don't know what it's called. And you can see here on the map You can see Dinka, and that's where we work. Near the city of Kalatzee, it's very lovely. Uh, My team is still there at the moment. Uh, They are uh, sending me pictures of green uh, landscapes, blue skies, the weather is so much better than uh, in Chicago that I wonder what we all are doing here. Uh, But in any case, we've been working there since uh, 2015. Uh, And our goal is to explore the lifestyle of people quite far away from the heartland of Assyria, from the excellent farming regions that are typically explored uh, when one deals with the first millennium BC. And we uh, have uh, a lot of work to do because our uh, Iron Age settlement that at one point gets taken over by the Assyrian state, spreads over 60 hectares according to the surface portrait that has been collected by us and by our colleagues from the uh, French uh, survey team, headed by Jessica Giraud. And we also have a magnetometer survey that has already uh, 18 hectares covered. That's the gray uh, hair in the image. And we've been excavating a lot. We've had two seasons uh, each year and we've exposed uh, over a thousand square meters. Um, and all of this is exciting, of course, but one of the main reasons why we are doing this is because we have the opportunity in the Kurdish region uh, of um, collecting and exporting for study uh, the organic material, so that's bones, and all sorts of uh, plant remains. Don't know whether she's here, but Melissa Rosenzweig from Chicago is our paleobotanist, uh, and Tina Greenfield uh, is the paleozoologist, and these are preliminary data. Not uh, not all has been analyzed so far, but we can already show that there are instances of tax-free farming and livestock breeding Uh, in our settlement. Uh, There's a lot of pig. Um, We don't yet have the data on uh, birds because that's uh, very small bones. Uh, That needs another type of specialist to analyze, but we are confident that we will find uh, chicken bones because they do appear at that time in other Assyrian sites. It is precisely during that time, the 9th to 7th century, that the chicken starts its victory march over the world (laughs) and becomes a favorite uh, on the dinner table also in Assyria. And these birds are not taxed. They come from uh, India via Iran into the Mesopotamian plain at that time. Uh, And while they... Uh, I'm sure you all know that on, on early Greek vases, uh, roosters are sort of giving like like uh, flowers to a person one admires. Uh, yes, they are beautiful, they're you know, wonderful gifts, but in the end you eat them, okay? So, you know, <laughs> no one keeps a chicken around because they have such nice personalities. If I offend anyone, forgive me, but uh, that's, 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 uh, that's, it's very clear that they are, they are, in the end they, they are eaten. So we don't yet know how big poultry is in our neck of the woods, but we can be confident that there is uh, uh, chicken bones. Uh, when it comes to the plant remains, well, we have all the expected stuff, so barley, wheat, emmer, but also bitter veg. Now bitter veg, if you Google it, you learn quickly that it's a natural appetite suppressant. That's why it's apparently quite popular nowadays. Uh, It's also an animal feed, but uh, people can, you can just eat it as well. Uh, Being an an appetite suppressant might be an added bonus. Uh, I've never eaten it myself. It's called bitter veg for a reason, yeah. Uh, But that's something that we have there, and you don't pay taxes on that. Uh, You do pay tax on fruit, such as grapes, but you don't pay tax on lentils and peas and other vegetables. Now, it would be very nice if we also unearthed some cucumber seeds. That would be wonderful because the cucumber also roughly at that time is supposed to move, migrate uh, from the east to the west, but so far we haven't had... Uh, any, uh, There is um, there's the hope, however, that it turns up. But it's, uh, um, to me, it's important to just point out that uh, there are very many ways how you can undermine the taxation system, you know? If you are part of the Assyrian Empire, you can choose to become, what one might term, an internal periphery, there are all sorts of pastoralist groups within our black line that do not fully or not at all cooperate with the state authorities. And as long as they don't expect any special services, and especially as long as they are not obstructive, that seems to be fine, yeah? So we have to be aware of the fact that by being inside the black line, inside the provincial system, you are not automatically a member of the Assyrian state. You have to opt into that and you do that by choosing a particular lifestyle. Now obviously, we have to stress that this particular lifestyle is the traditional lifestyle in that region ever since the Neolithic period, yeah? So, but if you wanted to opt out, you could do it. And then you would oppose the Assyrian Empire. Okay. So given that conscription and taxation is all what, uh, is really what the empire wants, what the state wants, we have to stress that the concept of freedom does exist in Assyria. Zakutu is a thing. Freedom means to be exempt from taxes. That's what it means. It's a a sense of freedom that many of you will be (laughs) able to relate to. (laughs) But I think it's worth pointing out that that is what freedom is in Assyria. And therefore, we will, in my final bit of the talk, will focus on tax exemptions. Okay, tax exemptions. Sounds like a great idea. Um, Originally, within Assyria, uh, they are a rare thing and are granted for land that uh, supplies offerings, sacrifices for particular temples. It Makes sense, why would you tax uh, this land when the proceeds go towards uh, nourishing the gods in the temple? Ultimately, all taxation in Mesopotamia derives from the idea that you owe the gods their due. The original idea of the tax is a sacrifice to the gods. And by that time, it is the state, the king, who has appropriated the idea, and uh, we will see, however, that sacrifices and taxes are still very, very close. We'll look at the text in a moment. Okay, Um, things uh, take a different turn, apparently, late in the 8th century, under the reign of Sargon II, who you are all familiar with, because we are at the Oriental Institute, and the Burjah Gallery is around the corner. So Sargon II is deeply unpopular, deeply, deeply contested as king, at the beginning of his reign, and several times after. And he, exempts entire cities wholesale from tax. And those tend to be precisely the cities where he's most unpopular, yeah? So I'd say he does that in order to boost his popularity. <laughs> there seems to be a very clear link, yeah? Okay, um, that is a good idea in the short term, uh, but on the whole it creates uh, various problems. We can see that from the um, state correspondence of uh, Sargon's time. Uh, there is a letter from the governor of Ashur who is really, really upset with the king and writes, so okay, you already have accept, uh, exempted uh, the city of Ashur from Texas, and now you've also exempted the city of Ekalatum. So how on earth do you think I'll meet my quota? Yeah. So that that, that sums it up nicely in many ways. So okay. Um, With Sargon's death, uh, it appears that all these tax exemptions are of course nil and void, that's the idea. If you want to be exempt from tax, you make sure that I stay on the throne. That's basically what he's doing. Uh, His immediate successors are not overly keen on the idea. They don't apparently need to. They are secure enough in their power. And then comes Ashurbanipal. Ashurbanipal, Uh, has a lot of good press, it's inexplicable to me because he is a terrible (laughs) king. He's on the throne for a very, very long time. And I would say the the end of the Assyrian Empire that Martha summed up uh, very neatly in the beginning, uh, that is very much due to the fact that he is on the throne for such a long time. And God knows what happens towards the end of his reign Uh, but he does all sorts of weird things, and one thing is also that when he finally dies, there's only a child to be his successor, which shouldn't really be an issue at all, because he had children at the time when he was a crown prince already. So things are very, very weird towards the end of Ashurbanipal's reign, and Ashurbanipal um, has a lot of cronies. Ashurbanipal, as many of you will know, completely gives up on the idea that the king needs to be the military leader of the Assyrian Empire. He gives up on the idea of fighting all evil on the battlefield and he instead uh, sort of uh, is more of a ritualist, let's put it like that. Yeah, He um, supports uh, his country in other ways and he takes this role of a conduit between the god Ashur and because, because, uh, between the t- uh, people very, very seriously, no doubt, and that is, after all, the central role of being king of Assyria, but it doesn't translate in being a very active king that is among the people. So there is a clear uh, indication of the king surrounding himself with cronies uh, that are being rewarded extremely uh, well for their loyalty, and most of these cronies thank God, are eunuchs, because at least when they die, no one will inherit the massive, massive privileges of tax exemption that they have on all their land, yeah? Okay, so Ashurbanipal does funny things like uh, making uh, the chief cook and the chief musician uh, the eponym of the year, so the person that lends uh, his name to the year, this is uh, one of the indications that we have that he's very much closed up in the palace and doesn't really interact very much anymore with the traditional imperial elite, our eunuch governors that are everywhere else. So he's really among this closed group of people. And those are the ones that are exempted Uh, uh, from, from Texas as a reward for their loyalty. In difficult times, no doubt. Only we don't quite know what the difficult times really are, but it seems that the royal family is busy killing each other off at that time because otherwise it's difficult to explain why his eventual successor, Ashur Etel Ilani, Asu is the prince of all, uh, um, of all gods, is the meaning of his name. Why, well, he's a boy when he comes to the throne. A boy that needs the guidance of the chief eunuch, Malaysia uh, to do things. And he comes to the throne after a succession war, and in the aftermath of that succession war, he grants tax exemption to all the military commanders that were on his side, and the big change is now that these are not eunuchs, that they have children, and that the tax exemption is explicitly granted in perpetuity for all times, for the person and their descendants, their heirs. Yeah? So that's a radical departure. So, so till the end of the 8th century, the Assyrian state was all about collecting taxes, but it was also growing. Now at the time, when it was no longer growing in territory, when the provincial system didn't uh, see any, any kind of gain anymore, they come up with the tax exemption. Makes sense, but I would argue it's a bad idea. OK, so here is uh, uh, one such text. Um, it's a tax exemption for the cohort commander, Tapsha Papahi, some very ordinary guy. The, I mean, some, one of very many uh, military commanders is what I mean by that. Uh, unlike the people that are exempted from tax during the reign of uh, Ashurbanipal, uh, who are much more elevated. Um, and um, we have a chance to very briefly look at the tax burden in Assyria, because it's really not all that much, comparatively speaking. So the uh, text and its uh, the various other tax exemptions from the reign of Ashurbanipal have this list of taxes that don't need to be paid. I'll read it out to you. The corn taxes of these fields and orchards shall not be collected. We know that the tax duty would be 10% on those. The straw taxes shall, shall not be gathered. That's an Assyrian imperial innovation uh, that one collects tax on straw, and it's the highest tax of all, 25%. Okay. Uh, these people shall not be called up for labor and covey service uh, or for the levy of the land. So that would amount to the labor, uh, the conscription. We've talked about it's uh, 100 uh, days per year. They are free from K crossing, and gate use on land or water. They are free, we restore, from the sacrifices in all the temples. So here we have the sacrifices again, as I promised you that there's a link still between sacrifices and taxes. They are free from boat and crossbar. Don't know what that means. No one really does. It seems to be another kind of crossing or entry fee. No tax on his cattle, sheep, and goats shall be collected. And finally, he shall not turn over anything of his earnings at the conclusion of a business venture. That sounds pretty nice, I'm sure, to all of you. So that's the extent of the Assyrian tax duty. We don't always know how much it is, but it is very little compared to modern standards, of course. Yeah? So it's not an overwhelmingly big burden. There are various Achaemenid specialists here and they will all be able to tell you that the tax dues uh, in Achaemenid times were much, much higher. Yeah? But no one rebelled against the Assyrian Empire because of the tax duty. No, that was really not a problem. We have said that the Assyrian Empire is a lowland predatory state. That sounds very disagreeable. But we can also say the Assyrian Empire is a community of taxpayers. Then it sounds still a bit odd, but you know what more pleasant perhaps uh, I think it's a very good description of the Assyrian Empire, especially as it doesn't. Uh, preclude the existence of our internal uh, peripheries of you know people in the mountains, people in the desert people that grow bitter veg and so on, <laughs> people that eat chicken <laughs> so these uh, the Assyrian Empire if we describe it as a community of taxpayers that, those are the people that accept the king as their sovereign and they pay their taxes and that's a good recipe for stability and it seems to work so therefore it's a really, 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 really bad idea to start granting tax exemptions because that corrodes the sense of community and solidarity that people apparently felt for a long time for this state. And I end with that, thank you very much.